My name is Esther. I'm one of the congregants here, and I'm bringing the word this morning. Super excited about it, so. Um, and also, uh, just wanna say thanks to John and Jana for giving me this opportunity to share with you this morning. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, okay, so today we're gonna talk about the story of Jacob. So we've been uh, going back and forth through Genesis. We've got kind of this um, historical, but also like very dramatic um, family moments that we're, we're working through here. And one of the things I really wanna to highlight today is just about in this story of Jacob, I wanna look at how God's purpose is continued to be fulfilled amidst everything that happens. And um, I also just wanna say, it was really a joy to write out everything. I'll probably be reading my notes a lot since I haven't preached in a while, but um, it was just a really a joy to write out this whole uh, sermon that I'm gonna share with you this morning. It's kind of like a compilation of episodes of what I feel like the Lord has been speaking to me and just enriching my life with. So I'm just, it's an honor to share that with you this morning. Um, so I wanna talk about this story here. We have Jacob and he's wrestling God and it's just sort of this little blip almost, kind of like a little bit of a weird uh, scenario here. Um, God has this plan ultimately that he's unfolding. I kind of like to think of it like a flower that unfolds and is birthed slowly over time. This incredible plan for humanity, this overarching narrative that ultimately we are a part of. And um, nowadays, you know, we love to watch great stories. Um, we love great movies. It's all on streaming. You know, is it on Hulu? Prime, you tell me what's your favorite show? Where can I get it? Um, and we used to say, oh, it's so much better than cable, but now it's become its own little bundle, right? If you don't have that one, you can't watch that one show. Kind of annoying, but there we go. That's what they love to do, no. Um, but we love the drama, we love the sarcasm, the new aspects of humanity, human relationships revealed, and we love to see ourselves in those stories. We see triumph and heartache, love, and sometimes we find ourselves, um, you know, looking for kind of that resolution. Um, in our own lives that we never ultimately get because our lives kind of continue and continue. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like I had a friend who was actually visiting me today, right here, and um, she was, I was sharing with her my sermon just to kind of like prep. She was saying, um, it's like a mirror. You know, these episodes that we watch are like a mirror. And the Bible itself is also like a mirror. We kind of want to see ourselves within these stories to understand our own lives, to understand our own relationships. And it's just this kind of drama and love and the facets of humanity as you begin to understand and see this unfolding of this incredible plan. Um, and so we're gonna talk about kind of this little piece of Jacob and his story today. And we're gonna discuss too kind of how this is like a little blip where God shows up. Um, kind of like the famous directors like Hitchcock, um, Scorsese, uh, Tarantino, they show up in their movies. I don't know if you guys know this, they like sometimes make cameos. So God is making a cameo in his story today. Um, so we have, just kind of make sure we get the background for people who haven't been here or don't know the story. We have these two twins, Jacob and Esau, and they're born almost like fighting to get out of the womb. And Jacob, he literally has his hand on the heel of his brother. And they name Jacob, Jacob, because it means usurp, usurper. He's trying to kind of pull himself out uh, first, but Esau ultimately gets it. And when Rebecca, the mom, was pregnant, she got a word from God saying, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the younger will rule over the older. 
So when Esau came out first, Rebecca knew that Jacob would be the one to inherit the blessing, the promise, the legacy, and perhaps she even begins to implant this idea into his mind. Um, regardless, he sees an opportunity as he gets older and he takes it. Um, Esau comes in starving from a hunt and Jacob barters some stew for the birthright. And you know, he just kind of continues to scheme his way in and ultimately barters or schemes his way into the blessing with his uh, dad as well. And Esau finds out the extent of what kind of Jacob does to get his father's blessing. And so he's so angry that Jacob's worried he's gonna kill him. So he flees, runs away from his life. Rebecca, his mom is like, go to your uncle Laban. And so we kind of find him um, after he spent a couple years with Laban, uh, eventually deciding that maybe he needs to come back and confront this history, this story with his brother that has been weighing over him for so long. And that's where he meets God in this place right before that. Um, so as he's running away though, I wanna talk about this kind of common theme that we see in the Bible. Um, it's kind of like this, uh, I'll share a couple stories, but basically it's a, an acknowledgement of a call followed by a human response to make it happen through our own means. And then that you know, doesn't go well, so we run away. For example, we have Adam and Eve. Their purpose was to be this calling, you know, this purpose was to be fruitful, to multiply, to care for the earth as ones made in the image of God. And they um, ultimately eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, taking fate into their own hands, thinking, well, it would be better to know how to do these things, how to care for the earth, how to be fruitful and multiply on our own strength. So they do that um, and eat it, only they learn that it's not promising what they thought. And thankfully, God is gracious enough to kick them out of the garden so that they didn't eat of the tree of life and thus remain permanently in this fallen state. Um, and you know, even within that fallen state, they still manage to be fruitful, to multiply, care for the earth. And we find God swoops in later and um, redeems the story of humans, redeems their purpose and calling through the second Adam. Then we also see, we have another father of the faith, if you will, um, called Moses, and we see him, he also kind of has a calling, um, tries to act on his own accord, and then messes it up, and then years later, God kind of restores that. So he sees uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and something within him rises up. He wants justice, this is not right. But he takes his calling into his own hands and kills the Egyptian, and he's forced to run for his life. And you know, this is a very kind of similar story to our hero here, Jacob. Um, he took his calling, and his, uh, or Moses takes his calling and his own purpose into his hands. He flees for his life until 40 years later with a renewed sense of call, this time a deeper reliance on God, doing it God's way. He realizes like this is the actual way I'm supposed to be doing things. Same with Jacob. He gets the birthright, he gets the blessing from his brother, steals them for all intents and purposes, intensive purposes and then runs away for 20 years until he returns to kind of truly fulfill his purpose. And we're seeing that in this part of the story. And what I wanna point out here is that God fulfills his purpose in the midst of our human mess, or I would like to say in the midst of our human-ness. Um, it's all of us trying to take our calling and our destiny into our own hands. We get excited about the call. We think it's up to us to make it happen. In a sense, it's just us kind of trying to play God in those moments. We feel the weight and the invitation of the burden of that invitation from God. We're like, I'm so honored, God. And we wanna do it right, but we only respond in the way that we know how in our own humanness. Um, and 
reality is it's really just a waiting game. Our responding needs to continue. It's kind of like this dance that we have with God um, in the invitation that God gives us for our calling. We step out in faith, God responds. We step out in faith, God responds, as opposed to really trying to force the hand and make it happen on our own. And it's nice. We can rest in the freedom that God's purpose will prevail despite our humanness. Um, but let's keep going with this story. So <clears throat> we find Jacob living with uh, his uncle Laban right before he leaves and finds himself wrestling with God and, and getting ready to re-encounter Esau. And he's building a future for himself with Laban. Last week, we learned about Leah and Rachel, um, the turmoil Laban had of giving Jacob his first wife, Leah, when Jacob really wanted the second-born Rachel. So he's like, why not two wives? You know, no big deal. Um, and he is just trying to basically build up his family, build up his wealth so that he can become this nation and try to fulfill this calling. And if you read the text, there are some indicators that Jacob has not left behind his scheming ways. Um, he kind of weasels his way into a fair amount of wealth with his uncle Laban. Um, you know, maybe it's kind of similar to like skimming off the coffers. He basically breeds all of the good sheep together so that he can then kind of have the stronger sheep in the more growing flock, so to speak. Um, and he, he enlarges his wealth, but um, Laban's sons start to notice. So the relationship is kind of turns a little sour. So as a result, he decides, he's like, it's time to leave. I'm a little, getting a little uncomfortable here. I feel like things could, could go downhill. And, and Laban's like, you know, family business. What's mine is yours. And what's mine, what's yours is mine. And what's mine is yours until you get more than me. So he's kind of like, we got to get out of here. Um, so that puts Jacob on a path back to his homeland to face his past now 20 years gone. Um, but this time with a new and a different ending. So basically Jacob is moving from a complicated in-law situation and he finds himself soon to come face to face with his arch nemesis and brother Esau. So that he's kind of packed up all his camels, all his family, all his belongings, and they're moving towards back to his homeland. And you know, let's remember the last time he saw him, he had stolen Esau's birthright or rather bartered for it, depending on who you ask. And um, Esau was ready to kill him, so he had fled. Um, and this time, he finds out right before this wrestling with God passage that Esau's coming with 400 men. Does he plan to kill him? Like, come at me, bro. Or does he come in peace? Like, bro, what's up, you know? Um, unclear. And maybe he thinks Jacob is coming to claim his land, claim his birthright, and in doing so, kill Esau. Both brothers are really hedging their bets, you know, in a rather tenuous relational meeting um, after these 20 years have passed. And Jacob is returning not to kill, not to destroy Esau, but he's returning to what he ran away from to fulfill his purpose and fulfill his birthright 20 years later. Um, you know, and it, it might be easy just reading the text to be like, has Jacob forgotten his calling? Or does, you know, like, I said, he simply see himself fulfilling it by marrying, growing his wealth, his household. And now he's like, all right, ready to move in, God. Let's do this. Um, but even as time passes, God continues to fulfill the purpose and call that he has on Jacob's life, even though um, Jacob is trying to do this in his own striving. You know, though Jacob is trying, as they say in the streets, to secure the bag. 
I don't know if you guys know that term. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's trying to secure the bag, and in his mind, he's like logically scheming, building wealth, you know, and now he's returning to try and step into the fulfillment of what he's like, all right, great nation, here we come. Um, but he's coming, you know, also at the same time, face to face with this mess of a past that he had, um, but ultimately only because he got too uncomfortable in his old spot. It was like, got a little bit too much, you know, too many like looks, side eyes from his uh, Laban sons, you know, like, I think we need to get out of here before this goes bad. So regardless, God is faithful. He's always waiting and always ready when his people are ready. Never mind seven years, Paul, you know, before he entered ministry, 40 years, Moses, before he entered, 20 years, Jacob. God works with us on our timelines in our limited human capacities to fill, fulfill his purpose. In Philippians 1, 6, it states, God is faithful to complete the good work that he has started in you. So don't forget that. And it's kind of nice, because these Bible characters, you know, they really mess it up. Um, so you're like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not that terrible after all. Um, but these are the people God calls, and he calls them, and he fulfills his purposes through them. So it's great. Um, in the Bible, we often see parallels and metaphors and stories, and um, they're often there to emphasize or to highlight something. And personally, I like to think these parallels are emphasizing who God is as a creator, his intricate workings and moving of the puzzle pieces into a larger plan, into this overarching greater narrative, and he does it so skillfully. Let's take a look at this. We have Esau coming to confront his past, his brother Esau, Sorry, Jacob coming to confront his brother Esau. Um, it's his second chance, kind of like a redo of sorts. And not only is he coming back to his homeland, but he's coming back to establish himself and take his rightful place, the birthright, the blessing, this family legacy. And uh, perhaps he sees it as his next step into fulfilling, you know, or like this movement he sees as his next step into fulfilling the legacy God left his grandfather. Um, but can he make amends and inhabit the land for him and his people? Let's find out. Spoiler alert, he does, but we'll get there. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, the night before the big meetup with his brother, we find him sending his family away from himself, separating himself from his possessions, and he's just kind of like getting mentally ready. What's next? Will Esau kill him? Will it not? You know, and God's remind, and Jacob's reminding God, he's like, okay, you told me, don't forget. Um, make me prosper, make my descendants like the sand of the sea, like you're gonna do this, right? Because this is pretty tenuous out here. Um, and it's kind of like the night before the big game or more like preparing for a potential bloody family feud, a little bit bigger stakes. Um, but Jacob is always the schemer. He is strategizing, he's planning and he's thinking ahead. And his plan basically is like, I'm gonna send tons of goats, I'm gonna send all these gifts to soften Esau up and let the person who's bringing those gifts, let him know Jacob's coming and kind of just appease him. He doesn't want to fight. He wants Esau to forgive him. And so, you know, he's like, please let me dwell in this land alongside you in peace. So Jacob is just like probably full of tons of anxiety and rightly so. Last time he saw Esau, um, Esau was like full of anger. And I, I want to look at these two sort of anxiety and anger, two sides of the same coin, or should I say twins of the same mother. You like what I did there? Um, but basically, like, they have this response. And I think often we lean towards one or towards the other. When we're fearful of all the what-ifs in life, the past experiences or traumas that have formed our broken lens through which we view the world, 
we want to protect ourselves from potential, the potential of being hurt, so we try to control something through our responses. Um, and as our creator and supposed ruler of all, you know, we want to be like, can we trust him? Is God trustworthy or is God not? This is something Jacob and maybe even Esau are both trying to suss out in their own way. And they both respond with kind of like this anger or this anxiety. And I think anger is just, you know, really another form of anxiety in some ways. It's like driven by a feeling out of control. And oftentimes I think anxiety is a little more nebulous and let's be real, sometimes more socially acceptable today than anger is. So it's a little bit easier to justify in our minds. We are fearful of things that we cannot control. And our bad experiences are informing that perspective on our lives. But I got news for you. I don't know if it's, well, it is good news in the end, but uh, we don't have that much control over our lives. It's really more of like an illusion of control. We, have, we don't have control over whether the sun rises or falls each day. We have faith it will, but as humans, we don't have that much control. And Jacob, in his day, was truly exposed to the elements. He knew he had a very small, small modicum of control in those times, even if that, as a nomad, looking for a place for his family and all his wealth to stay. He's anxious. And for the first time, this is him stepping out and making a decision by himself. He's not being bossed around by his brother. He's not being bossed around by his mom. He's not being bossed around by Laban. He's taking a step out, he's very vulnerable. What could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Oh yeah, only his entire family and livelihood wiped out by an old grudge of his brother and his past actions taking control and coming back to haunt him. He's in a vulnerable spot. But it's in this space that we find him coming face to face through an encounter with God in a wrestling match of all things. He spends all night wrestling with a strange man and manages to struggle and to eke out a blessing. Jacob quite literally says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And so God does. And he also blesses him with a slight hip injury as a memento to the occasion, along with a cryptic comment about his divine nature. It's a wild story. First of all, of all the times God, like, let me stay up on this sleepless night and metaphorically wrestle you in my own mind, thank you very much, sends family and possessions over to the other side of the river so he can do just that, to be alone. But then what, this strange man comes up to wrestle him who turns out to be divine and is like, I'm God? Um, what does this even mean? A, who knows? Literally scholars out there say there's not much sense to this. Is it really God? Is it just a divine presence? And why could God be in this form of a man but not you know, Jacob still couldn't, uh, he still couldn't overpower Jacob. It's just a very mysterious thing and story. And B, this is not exactly ideal timing for Jacob. He's heading into this possible family blood feud. He could be, end up being killed or his family and household at a minimum and God shows up, but it's not like, oh, I'm here to comfort you or give you a word. Instead, he's there to wrestle him. So it's a very surprising encounter with God, right? And perhaps this struggle with God is not just that at face value, but also a physical representation of the metaphor of Jacob struggling with God inside of himself. He has come this far on his own strength, his own devices, his own scheming, somewhat cheating Esau for his birthright, a technicality, really. Running away to survive, somewhat cheating Laban to grow his flocks, again, a technicality. But he finds himself in a situation that though he may strategize in how to solve it, he really has no control over the outcome. He is truly vulnerable, and this struggle and this 
this struggle and wrestling with God represents that. And I wanna say that I'm incredibly impressed with Jacob's tenacity. It's almost like this challenge makes it known that he's truly ready for what's next, to step into his destiny. It's easy to look at Jacob's track record for scheming and say, nah, God was just trying to work with what he had, the whoever happened to get the birthright, but uh, whoever happened to get the blessing. But no, this is God's purpose and specific call on Jacob's life. And God coming to wrestle him himself is yet another signifier of that. God chooses Jacob rightly and intentionally despite all of his faults. Jacob is resilient, smart, a strategizer, someone who will fight for the promise, someone who sees the incredible and amazing value of the birthright. This is who you want to be the father of the Jewish people. You want someone who is scrappy, someone who can weather the storms like the Israelites had to over the years, someone who is a planner, who will stop at nothing to succeed, someone who will fight even God himself for the blessing. Jacob will stop at nothing to fulfill his calling. And this, this is who you want to be the father of the faith. You don't want an Esau, you want a Jacob. And remember Rebecca's prophecy? Perhaps Jacob really is the stronger one, even though Esau was the physically stronger one. But it'd be easy to say, you know, Esau just didn't want the responsibility or weight of the promise. But what it really is, is that it wasn't his calling and God had something else for him. So we just don't know we don't know much about what that was, but we don't wanna to like totally throw Esau under the bus either. So back to the wrestling match. The wrestling comes to an end. Jacob insists on a blessing from this man, and this man, who is also somehow God, is ironically like, what's your name? I think he knows. And the man, i.e. God, blesses him and renames him uh, Israel. The renaming is important. It signifies God's pronouncing his purpose and his providership. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I'm saying, over Jacob. Early in Genesis, Adam and Eve are told to name all the animals to care and steward for them. God also renames Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, again, a signifier of their belonging to him. God is committing to stewarding Jacob, committing to fulfill his promise, naming him as a father names a son. God is confirming the birthright and legacy blessing Jacob received from Isaac. God is confirming his call. And the blessing is so critical, not just because of Jacob's tenacity, but it's almost as if Jacob gets to redo his birthright, but this time, instead of stealing it, he's earned it. He will instead be called Israel, which means wrestles with God. He's no longer the usurper. God is redoing what was done wrong and then turns around and has him reconcile with his brother Esau, who we find out later welcomes him with open arms and has forgiven him. Jacob maybe took his birthright the wrong way before, but God has graciously allowed him to right that wrong and try for a second chance. And this time, instead of trying to play God and make it happen on his own, God is inviting him to rely on God and work in partnership with God to fulfill his purpose for God and fulfill his promise to the Jewish people. In Proverbs 19, 21, it says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. God's purpose is fulfilled in ways we don't expect that are both scary and terrifying and also the most reassuring thing you'll ever experience. I think we all know Jacob welcomed the next day after wrestling with God, knowing that he was not only ready to meet his fate, but that God was with him. He had the blessing of a new name and became not only his name, but it was literally the birth of the nation, the prophecy fulfilled. Israel is a representation of the people who, but also of so much more 
a representation of the promise and a representation of the covenant. This is so God. Here in the story of God's people, we see and, and truly experience God's godness, God's otherness. He knows what we can't. We can try and mess it up. <clears throat> Adam, Eve, Moses, Jacob. We can't. God's purpose is fulfilled. We often use the word holy to describe God, and it's not necessarily a part of our regular vernacular. And I remember growing up, I was always like, what does this really mean? Um, it means other. It means otherness. Uh, set, separate, set apart, something different than us. Yes, we're made in God's image, but God remains other, and that's a good thing. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His purpose, it prevails. And thank goodness. I pretend I know what is right, how to make things work, but really I don't. Jacob thought he knew it was right, fulfill the prophecy in X, Y, Z ways, fill in the blank. But for all his strategizing, he kept putting himself in tougher and tougher positions. And it took wrestling with God, which was really a metaphor for what he was doing all along, to seal the deal that God was the one who was in charge, running the show, giving purpose and providing for Jacob, not himself. Jacob wasn't providing for himself. There goes, make sure that pronoun was clear. Um, in Hebrews 4, it talks about entering God's rest, and it's really talking about resting in the knowledge of God and that he doesn't expect us to be more than human. Let me say that again. God does not expect us to be more than human. There's an incredible freedom in that. This is what God does for all his people. He fulfills his purpose, both in and through our mistakes. He brings good from all that is intended for bad. He is the provider of the promise the overarching narrative of scripture. We ourselves are just people amidst this larger story. Jacob is a person, albeit a significant one, amidst the larger narrative of God's story. And as we look at God's story a bit further down the line, we come to see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the original promise to Abraham. Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and they will bring God to the nations. And Jesus did that, ju did just that, allowing for all who desire God uh, to know God and be adopted into God's family. And why did Jesus come to this earth? John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I have good news for you this morning. God's purpose involves his creation and his humans flourishing. God's purpose is about our flourishing. Your calling on your life is about your flourishing. And I know sometimes we view God as the one who makes judgment or punishes us. But is he then also about our flourishing? Who is this God? A good question to examine. If we only being human and fallen know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to us? If we being human discipline our children to help them grow and keep them safe, how much more does God discipline those that he loves? It says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. What I'm trying to say is that not only does God's purpose prevail, but his purpose is to parent us in our humanness, to protect and provide for us as a father. His purpose for us is, to live, is for us to live and live abundantly. When we first started the service, we read a couple different passages, 2 Peter 1, 13 through 21, which talks about a time where the disciples bore witness to God's encounter with Jesus, where he said, this is my son, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And in Luke 9, uh, it, 
was a passage about the transfiguration, which is kind of just a fancy way of saying that the disciples encountered a small glimpse of Jesus in his full heavenly glory. Almost as if to say, this is who Jesus looks like, you know, in his real godness. Um, and it's just a small snippet of his, uh, basically is a small snippet of his true purpose and his fulfillment, the calling of being God's beloved. This is the same purpose God wishes to call us to into, the purpose of living an abundant life as his children, to be his beloved child, to live into this identity and to make all life decisions based on this knowledge. The God of the universe has adopted you into his family. That should darn well change the way you operate in the world. Jacob was acting like the prophecy fulfillment was up to him. Like living on the run was the only solution, again, surviving was up to him. Like growing his flock was up to him. Fulfilling the legacy and prophecy spoken over his grandfather was up to him. Appeasing Esau was up to him, instead of up to God and God's plan. So he kind of helped the plan along, but also made it harder on himself. Where are we acting like it's up to us to fulfill our purpose? Do we know what our purpose or our call is that God has on our lives? Could it be as simple as living as his beloved children? So as we think about the anxieties and angers of our lives right now, let's also see this as an opportunity to embrace the anxiety, the anger, the desire for control, the confusion, as an opportunity to encounter and possibly rediscover the purpose and calling of God on our lives. A purpose that leads not to us playing God, for that leads to death, but a purpose we are just, as we, where we are just called to be humans, for thankfully, that's already what we are, and for God to be God. Not only does God expect us to be human, but he created us this way, and he works in and through our supposed failings, even if it takes 20 years like Jacob or 40 like Moses, that's fine. His purpose will prevail, and your flourishing is top of his mind.